Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast, where we explore the life and times of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur and delve into the history of World War I, World War II, and the Korean War. We invite you to follow us on Twitter, at MacArthur1880, or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. To commemorate the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Midway, the MacArthur Memorial, the Hampton Roads Naval Museum, and the Virginia World War I and World War II Commemoration Commission hosted a series of lectures about the Battle of Midway. Walter Borman, author of MacArthur at War and the Admirals, presented a lecture entitled Sailing the Seas Towards Midway, the War in the Pacific prior to June 1942. Good morning. You know, it's uh, a pleasure to be here, and when I was invited by Chris and Jim Zobel to uh, speak about the Battle of Midway, I said, uh, you know, gosh, I'm not really a, a Midway expert. And they said, that's okay. We have the experts coming. What we want you to do is set the table. And that's what I'm going to indeed do this morning, set the table of how we got to Midway. I want to go through a few landmark things in terms of Japan's relations with the world in the 50 years prior to Midway. And then we're also going to talk about, based on my book, The Admiral, some of the American leadership that appears at Midway. And finally, we're going to do kind of a quick overview, operational history of what goes on between Pearl Harbor and June 2nd, 3rd, and 4th of, of 1942. So, sailing the seas toward Midway. Let's start by talking about the relationship between Japan and the United States. Note that they're about at the same parallels of latitude. The difference is that the United States, in terms of its development, moved westward across the North American continent. Japan, as it faced industrialization during the late 19th century, also moved westward. But what did that do? It put it on a collision course with China. And indeed, Japan and China have been adversaries for a long period of time. You might remember in 1274, Kublai Khan sent a great fleet to attempt to capture Japan. What happened? Divine wind, the Japanese called kamikaze, came up and destroyed it. Well, Japan and China's history are much different in the years after that. And China continues to interact with the West. Japan really doesn't. It sort of closes its ports, and it remains closed until Matthew Perry opens uh, Japan's ports to commerce in 1853. Now, I would suggest to you that no country in the intervening last part of the 19th century really embraces the Industrial Revolution more so than Japan. And there's a huge change. Japan builds a new army, models it after Germany, builds a new navy, models it after Great Britain, and really steps forward onto the world stage. The first conflict occurs in 1894, the first Sino-Japanese War. Everyone in the West says, Japan? Oh, Japan's an upstart. Japan can't take on China. Well, not only does Japan take on China, but Japan wins. Central to our story in World War II is, as part of that, the island of Formosa. The island of Formosa is, in fact, Japanese territory after that treaty with, uh, with China going ahead and, and ending that conflict. After the uh, first Sino-Japanese War, uh, what happens? 
Japan moves into Korea. Korea is sort of a vassal state of Japan at that point, and it puts Japan on a collision course with that other great power in the Far East, Russia. We all know about the Russo-Japanese War, 1904-1905. Japan starts it with a sneak attack on the Russian fleet at Port Arthur, sends 10 Japanese torpedo uh, or destroyers in there with, with torpedoes. And it's, it's very much a surprise attack. And the results of the war, including the great naval battle at Tsushima, Russia is really wiped out as a power in the Far East. And Japan takes another step in terms of going ahead as world power. Let me suggest that the First World War, Japan is actually an ally of the United States and the other allied powers. There's even a Japanese naval squadron that's at work convoying allied ships in the Mediterranean. But what does World War I really do in terms of the big story, particularly in terms of Midway? After the Treaty of Versailles goes ahead and concludes the First World War, Japan is the beneficiary of all of these islands that have been German territory. So the Marianas, except for Guam, the Carolines, and the Marshalls all become Japanese territory. Look at this line between Hawaii and the Philippines. The United States has always figured, well, you know, we can go ahead and defend the Philippines. We'll just send the fleet out here and, and counter any kind of uh, aggressor or, or harm to the Philippines. But now suddenly, post-World War I, Japan controls a large stretch of the Central Pacific. Well, the other thing that happens right after World War I is the Washington Naval Conference, 1921. Everyone thinks in the, or at least most people think in, in the aftermath of World War I, well, we have the League of Nations. Japan joins the League of Nations. The United States does not. Um, that, okay, there's going to be a new era of peace. We're going to pass these naval treaties that basically limit capital ship construction. If we limit tonnages and capital ship construction, somehow, some way, there's going to be peace. Well, that certainly doesn't happen. But let me suggest to you, as we sort of do these landmarks, as, as Japan goes to a world power, the very fact that the Washington Naval Conference in 1921 includes the United States, Great Britain, and Japan, <clears throat> even, even though the United States and Great Britain have 5-5 five, five to a ratio of 3 naval superiority with Japan, the very fact that Japan is on the world stage with those other two powers, pretty significant. Well, in the meantime, what's been happening in China? By 1927, I'd suggest to you in one word, China's really in chaos. But by 1927, Chiang Kai-shek has sort of solidified some emerging national government in China. Now, there's certainly communist opposition, even that early. But what happens with that is that as Chiang Kai-shek solidifies some of that national government and kind of extends his power northward into Manchuria and brings that under the Chinese uh, overall government, that puts China on even more of a collision course with Japan. And along about that time, 1931, another marker, there's something called the uh, Manchurian Incident 
And it's, it's really kind of a minor thing. There's an explosion on a railway. doesn't even really disrupt the railway. But Japan says, oh, my gosh, China's been the aggressor. We've got to move into Manchuria and, and seize, seize Manchuria. That's what happens. They also send troops to occupy parts of Shanghai. Now, China, good member of the League of Nations that it is, says, oh, wait, we're going to appeal to the League. Japan, who's also a member of the League of Nations, says, yeah, I think we'll just withdraw from the League. So that doesn't do much in terms of, of going ahead and solving that crisis. Interesting footnote to that. In sort of a bait and switch, the w international community and the world is really focused on what's happening in Shanghai. And Japan goes back and forth, well, maybe we'll withdraw, maybe we won't withdraw. In the meantime, they're using all of their powers to solidify their control over Manchuria. In the end, they withdraw from Shanghai, but in the meantime, while the whole world order's been watching what's happening in Shanghai, they go ahead and solidify control over, over Manchuria. Well, moving on, 1937, you know, sometimes we think of World War II beginning in 39 in Europe or even 41 at Pearl Harbor, but World War II in the Pacific really does begin in 1937 when Japan full out decides to invade China. Again, there's an incident, sort of um, one of those uh, who fired first, but Japan uses it to go ahead and really uh, aggressively move it from Manchuria into the rest of uh, northeastern China. And at the same time, Chiang Kai-shek says, well, I'm really going to oppose this. So there's a major war that goes on between China and Japan through 1930, beginning in 1937 and really through the next four years up until when things really break out with the United States in, in 41. The United States kind of gets involved in the middle of this with an incident called the Panay Incident. The Panay is a river gunboat. It's on the Yangtze River one quiet Sunday morning. Why do these things always happen on Sunday mornings? Uh, in, in, in the uh, uh, Yangtze River port there at, at Nanking, and Japanese planes attack the Panay, strafe it, kill some Americans, kill some journalists who are involved, and William D. Leahy, who's uh, chief of staff of the uh, American Navy, chief of naval operations, basically advises Franklin Roosevelt, we've got to do something about this. We've got to take some action. Send the fleet out. Work with Great Britain to put up a quarantine and, and everything. Well, that advice, I wouldn't say that it falls on deaf ears because Roosevelt is responsive to that, but he's still fighting the Depression. And Great Britain, 1937, is occupied with things that are, that are going on in, in Europe. So there's just not the support. 70% in a Gallup poll in January 1938 of the American public say, we don't have any business at all being in the Far East. And America really turns a cold shoulder to what Japan is doing. And even though China is sort of a nominal ally of the United States at that particular point, there is, there is no... Um, American interest in terms of, of, of doing anything major there. Well, moving on very quickly, the war starts in, uh, in Europe. The uh, French fall in May of 1940. The Vichy government that still controls French Indochina sort of says, uh, Japan, you want to move some troops in here? You want to uh, set up some bases and stuff? Fine. 
And even as late as December of, of 1942, one of the things that Franklin Roosevelt is asking the Japanese is, well, now, wait a minute, you had this agreement with uh, uh, Vichy France uh, folks in, in French Indochina. What, why are you moving more and more and more troops there? Uh, please tell us about that. And, and, of course, Japan doesn't respond to that. So what has happened in July of 1941 is that Roosevelt imposes an oil embargo, both with Great Britain and the Netherlands, a three-way embargo of Japanese oil and raw materials that are coming from the Dutch East Indies and that part of, of Indochina. And in addition to that, Roosevelt freezes Japanese assets in the United States, recalls Douglas MacArthur to, to active duty in the Philippines, and basically begins to gear up in terms of a war footing. Let me suggest to you that while that embargo was really posed as a way to sort of curtail and hamstring Japan's operations, in some respects it made them even more determined to work on a fairly short time schedule to move into Southeast Asia and come up with uh, some level of those natural resources that they've needed historically. All right, let's do a quick overview of the players. I'm going to leave characterizations of Admirals Yamamoto and Nagumo to some of my colleagues and experts here, but I do, based on my book, The Admirals, want to run through a, a few characterizations of, of the Americans involved. Ernest J. King, who at the time of the Battle of Midway is Chief of Naval Operations and Commander of the U.S. Fleet. I would suggest to you that Admiral King is the overlooked strategist of World War II. The man who really says to the Joint Chiefs, all right, we have come up with an Allied plan and a U.S. plan of Germany first. But Admiral King, very much to his credit, is also focused on the Pacific. He's also focused on winning a two-ocean war and pouring resources into the Pacific. And quite frankly, sitting in this building, I would suggest to you that Douglas MacArthur is one of the beneficiaries of that. Because if King had not convinced the Joint Chiefs and the Joint Chiefs con uh, convinced Roosevelt to put resources into the Pacific, well, I, again, we would not maybe have been meeting the Japanese at Midway as we ended up doing. King has two things that he really develops over his career. He graduates from Annapolis in 1901. He's been born on the, on the uh, banks of Lake Erie in 1878. But as he goes through his naval career, he focuses on submarines and aircraft. He's very much a brown shoe admiral coming out of that aviation wing of, of the American Navy. He had a really fiery temper. And uh, I think like some other folks we could mention, there's really no middle ground with Admiral King. He either had his supporters or he had his detractors. One of his daughters, he had five daughters and a son, one of his daughters famously said, uh, Daddy? Daddy? Oh, he's the most even-tempered person I know. He's always in a rage. And, and, and I think that, that that probably was, was Admiral King. Uh, Chester Nimitz, very much different personality. He's somebody who uh, really leads by example. 
more apt to put his arm around you and say, hey, let's get this thing done together. Uh, Nimitz grows up uh, in the sand hills of uh, Fredericksburg, Texas, west of Austin. German family, stories told he went off to uh, uh, West Point. He wanted to go to West Point. Uh, very definitely, but he went off to Annapolis because there were so many cavalry uh, officers in Texas at that point who had sons they wanted to send to West Point. Uh, the congressman finally said to him, well, you're never going to get into West Point, but I've got this opening for Annapolis. Uh, what, if, what if you go there? And he agreed to go to Annapolis, uh, wrote back to his uh, parents, and who were, again, German immigrants, and uh, he said, well, I'm supposed to take uh, a foreign language. What do you recommend? And his uh, German-speaking folks said, uh, well, take English, son. I think that'll do, uh, put, you, put you in, uh, in, in, in good stead. But uh, Nimitz is, is someone who really goes through, interestingly enough, he builds, he's in charge of building the submarine base at Pearl Harbor in the 1920s. He pioneers naval ROTC uh, at Berkeley in uh, the late 1920s goes on and commands the uh, Augusta, the cruiser that's the flagship of the Asiatic fleet at uh, that particular point in the 30s, and then becomes chief of the Bureau of Navigation, which is essentially the Navy's personnel department. So by 1940, 1941, Nimitz has a really good idea of the strengths and weaknesses of the people that he's about to send into harm's way af after December 7th. Well, let's talk about Bill Halsey a minute. Bill Halsey was always kind of a fighter and a scrapper. Uh, he's the one in Annapolis that channeled his energies into athletics. He was voted his senior year the uh, midshipman who did the most to promote athletics. He goes on and serves some time on the Great White Fleet on battleships, but he's first and foremost a destroyer man, okay? He cuts his teeth in destroyers. Later, at a fairly advanced age for the time of 50, he's going to get into carrier aviation. King, by the way, has been a captain of the carrier Lexington, and he sort of, uh, I would say, he mentors Halsey a little bit in terms of saying, okay, you want to you command a carrier, uh, here's what you need to do. You need to go to Pensacola and basically uh, take, take flight instructions. I notice and thank all of the uh, veterans and, and families of veterans who stood. The most rewarding thing to me in terms of my writing about World War II has really been the stories of um, some of these men and some of others that have come to me. The nephew of Halsey's flight instructor from the 1930s emailed me this story, didn't make it into the book. It's one of those things it would be nice if it was there of Halsey coming down after one of his solo trips, jumping out of the plane. Remember, he's a Navy captain at this point, about 50, and this instructor is probably some young Lieutenant J.G., and Halsey jumps out of the plane, is all excited, and um, instructor says, um, well, Captain Halsey, Captain Halsey, why are you so excited? And Halsey slaps him on the back and says, well, son, I just got my prescription goggles, and for the first time I could see the instrument panel up there. The, uh, the, other, the other story about Halsey, gruff, pug, pugnacious, uh, that really says a lot about him is, is a story about uh, he was on the bridge of uh, one of the carriers at, at one point, and young junior officer looked down at the compass and kind of pondered a, a, a course change and kind of wondered out loud where that old SOB is taking us now. Well, out of the uh, shadows on the darkened bridge, out steps Halsey, 
shaking a finger at, at, at the junior and basically saying, not so old, young man, not so old. So Halsey had a sense of humor and, again, a much different personality, all, all three of those folks. Well, let's talk about Frank Jack Fletcher just a little bit. Uh, Fletcher graduates from Annapolis in 1906. That's a year behind uh, Nimitz. He actually wins the Medal of Honor for the action off Veracruz. What? Veracruz? What are you talking about? 1914, there's a little naval expedition to Veracruz. The Navy and the entire government at that point is a little bit more generous in terms of medals, particularly the storied Medal of Honor. But Fletcher wins a, a Medal of Honor for that. He goes on, and I would suggest to you that he is really the epitome of battleship admirals. He's somebody who goes and is able to command uh, destroyers, battleships, uh, cruisers by the time of Pearl Harbor. He's in charge of, of the, the scouting force. And somehow along the way, uh, I think Fletcher gets a little bit of a bad rap. Uh, I recommend to you a book by John uh, Lundstrom called Black Shoe Carrier Admiral, Admiral Frank Jack Fletcher at Coral Sea Midway and Guadalcanal. I think uh, that came out about 10 years ago, and I think it's really an overdue and very balanced uh, presentation in terms of, of Fletcher and his importance to really the entire American Navy, particularly in the months leading up to Midway. Well, Spruance, let's say a few things about Raymond Spruance. And from what I've been able to find out, it really was Raymond Spruance. That's the way he signed his letters. Uh, that's the way folks uh, addressed him. Uh, Ray Spruance this, Ray Spruance that. That's not what Raymond uh, would have said. And I think that characterization of his name says something, uh, and the way he wanted it characterized, says something about his meticulousness, he and Halsey, believe it or not, become great friends. Uh, Halsey is four years uh, Spruance's uh, senior, but their, their wives and families, they're both destroyer men. They pal around together, and yet they are polar opposites. I mean, Halsey is, is uh, brash, rough, gruff. Uh, one junior officer said, boy, when, when Halsey later on in the war had command of, of the fleet, we never knew what we were going to do. Spruance was just the absolute opposite, very meticulous, crossing every T, dotting every I, and yet somehow these two polar opposites become great friends, and of course as World War II goes on, they're going to alternate uh, command of, of the fleets. Well, we couldn't be in Norfolk without talking about Douglas MacArthur. I think the thing about MacArthur to remember is that he's very much a 19th century man. He graduates from West Point in 1903. He's going to go on to commands uh, in the famed uh, Rainbow Division in, during World War II, superintendent of West Point, becomes chief of staff of the Army under uh, uh, Hoover, uh, President Hoover, in, in 1930, and then retires from the Army, making a long story short, ends up in the Philippines. He's an advisor, and by the fall of 1941, he's basically convinced the uh, American leadership, the War Department, that he can, in fact, defend the entire archipelago of, of the Philippines. So that really brings us to December 7th of, of 1941. And I think the thing that is important, here's Nimitz taking command as Commander-in-Chief 
of the Pacific Fleet. Right after Pearl Harbor, Roosevelt had said to King, tell Nimitz to get out to Pearl Harbor and stay there until the war is won. And Nimitz did. He takes a train across country. He's kind of in shock. He ends up at uh, then flying from the West Coast to, to Pearl Harbor. And he assumes command on the deck of the Grayling on December 31st of, of, uh, of 1941. And he later joked that he took command on a submarine because it was the only ship that had survived the attack. Well, you know, that was Nimitz's sense of humor. Obviously, it wasn't quite that bad. But what Nimitz did recognize, and I think what's important to the upcoming battles, not only at Coral Sea, but certainly at Midway, Nimitz recognized that despite the horrific loss of American lives and treasure, there were really three things where it could have been an awful lot worse. The carriers were not in port. Where would we be with Midway if the carriers or some of the carriers had been sunk at Pearl Harbor? The second thing is the submarine forces he alludes to on the deck of the Grayling really is generally intact. It's going to have some problems with faulty torpedoes, but it's going to take the attack to the enemy very, very quickly. And the third thing, uh, and, you know, Admiral Nagumo is going to come under criticism for not launching a third attack wave or the second wave being more directed to Pearl Harbor infrastructure. But if the oil tanks, if the dry dock facilities, if all of that infrastructure had been destroyed on December 7th, 1941, that line of the American front in the Pacific would have perhaps been pushed back to the West Coast. No one by June of 1942 would have been able to turn around the Yorktown in three days and send it back out, out to sea to support the Midway way operations. So Nimitz was great at being able to bring people together and say, okay, I'm not going to cast any blame on what happened. It could have been worse. Let's focus on those three things, and let's move ahead and build what we can here at Pearl Harbor. And that's absolutely critical in terms of the next six months leading up to Midway. All right, King's orders in terms of the global strategists that we've alluded to. King tells Nimitz three things. One, you've got to protect the Hawaii to Midway line. We want Midway out there as a very important point, and probably in the spring of 1942, Midway, for all of its acreage and tiny atoll, may be the most heavily defended island and territory in the entire Pacific. The second thing he says is that you need to protect the West, Clo West Coast to Hawaii lifeline. Um, West Coast to Hawaii, but also West Coast to Australia. After the war, we know that maybe Japan didn't have quite the plans to go ahead and actually do a physical invasion of Australia, but they certainly had plans to cut off Australia from the American West Coast, hence their operations into the Solomons and things. So at this particular point, it's, it's really important for Nimitz to hold the West Coast to Hawaii and to Australia lifeline. The third thing, and this is really where King comes into his own as a global strategist, I think, he says to George Marshall, who's Army Chief of Staff and his colleague on the Joint Chiefs, you know, we are not going to do defensive containment in the Pacific. We are going to push back and take an offensive operation against the Japanese thrust. 
And I think that that is critical, not only to the story of Midway, but certainly the story of what goes on after Midway in terms of operations against Guadalcanal. I want to tell you a story about an operation here off Port Moresby and in the Gulf of Papa. It's March of 1942. The Japanese, as we mentioned, are moving into the Solomon Islands. You can see the dates of, of their expansion. Douglas MacArthur is still at this point in the Philippines on, on Corregidor. And he's basically saying, well, what's the American Navy going to do? The American Navy, having done some initial raids in January of 1942, uh, Enterprise and Halsey sail into the Marshalls, Fletcher and Yorktown sail into the Gilberts, sort of in terms of some almost uh, nuisance raids, but also to put the Japanese on notice that the American Navy is not going to take all of this uh, lying down. And in March of 1942, Lexington and Hornet, Fletcher is on, uh, excuse me, Lexington and Yorktown, uh, Fletcher is on uh, Yorktown, Wilson Brown is, is on Lexington, and the two carriers together sail into the Gulf of Papa while the Japanese are making this uh, assault against Ley and Salamaua, March 8th. And what they do is that relatively little known operation. They launch air attacks on these beachheads and on the Japanese transports and support ships that are off Ley. That does two things. The first thing it does is it really gives a whole cadre of flight officers on both of those ships some pretty serious training. You've got to fly over the Owen Stanley Mountains. It gets a little bit dicey up there. Uh, they're facing some aerial combat, but they're also able to uh, sink about three, three transports, uh, uh, a subchaser, and, and a few other cargo vessels there. So they get great flight operations and, and, and experience that particular way. But the most important thing that that raid does is convince the Japanese that, wow, wait a minute, we can't conduct these uh, uh, operations without adequate air cover. We're going to need our um, aircraft carriers and everything. And what happens is that they go ahead and have their main carriers at that point in the Indian Ocean and they postpone the invasion of Port Moresby that's involved with the Coral Sea battle here and basically put that back a few days and weeks as the time goes by. And I would suggest to you that that really does impact the entire schedule of, of the Battle of Midway. And if Coral Sea had happened earlier, uh, Midway may have, may have happened earlier, and that particular attack in, in New Guinea is significant. MacArthur, of course, a few days later, arrives in Australia. The Australian press says, wow, it really looks like he's here ready to go ahead and make a very good showing of things. He's a workhorse. And what is he going to command? MacArthur ends up with the Southwest Pacific here. Nimitz is in charge of everything else in terms of the Central Pacific, Northern Pacific, and the South Pacific where Robert Gormley and then uh, Bull Halsey are going to command. And of course this whole idea of the Central Pacific and Nimitz moving this way 
is important. I want to talk about uh, Yorktown and carrier operations a second. April 1942 is sort of, a, of an epiphany for Nimitz as a commander. Prior to that time, even though we talk about Lexington and Yorktown being together uh, for those operations, it really is a situation where King, despite the fact that he's pioneered carriers working together and everything, King really has uh, the idea that, well, maybe we better be a little careful with, with our carriers. Nimitz is the one who really pushes him, pushes him to marshal his carriers and King said offensive operations. Nimitz says, fine, this is how we're going to do it. And that certainly happens at Coral Sea, and that's sort of what brings us to this particular battle. Let me just go through the numbers for you here in terms of, of Coral Sea, and you can follow along on, on the map. Yorktown, number one there, North Yorktown and Lexington rendezvous under Jack, Frank Jack Fletcher's command on May 1st. Yorktown sends a raid against uh, Tulagi, the Japanese advancing there on May 4th, comes back with glowing reports, and Nimitz being Nimitz says, eh, not so fast. Let's see if we can't really make more of this happen, uh, join up with uh, uh, Lexington, and go ahead and, and take on the Japanese fleet. Yorktown and Lexington rejoin on May 5th, number three. Number four, uh, the Shoho sinks to the cry of scratch one flat top, famously on May 7th. And then, of course, there becomes the carrier duels. The duels back and forth and the fact that no capital ships are within sight of one another, it really, really triggers um, uh, carrier operations. The Lexington gets hit. I have a good friend named Bill Dye. Passed away, but I, I met him when he had his cap, Lexington CV-2. He used to tell the story many times of, of being on board here and going over the side. And he said, other than complaining about the $26 in his wallet that he left below decks, he, he basically said not one man on that ship got out of line. That's how we were able to get off with so few casualties. Shoes lined up on the deck, told a story of ice cream being passed out, a ration treat, you know, in, in the heat and, and stench of, of that battle, just before, um, of course, they, they abandoned ship, and, and later American destroyer Phelps sank the Lexington so it wouldn't fall in, into Japanese hands, sank it with, with a torpedo. All right, Nimitz this particular time and week is on the cover of Time magazine. The question the cover asks is, who wants to know where the fleet is? Well, we're going to find out from... Uh, Elliot Carlson, uh, that that question was being asked by a lot of people. So let me summarize three things that I think are important to the Battle of Midway that come out of all of this. One, Japanese naval expansion does not just occur between Pearl Harbor and Midway. It's really the culmination of 50 years, as we've seen, of Japanese expansion, Japanese military buildup, half a century during which they have not been defeated. Coral Sea we can put down as, as a draw, but as they go to Midway, there's this great uh, feeling of superiority and they have not known defeat. The second thing let me suggest to you in terms of all of this pre-Midway activity is King's policy 
of global two-ocean war. If King hadn't really pushed on the Joint Chiefs a strategy to go ahead and hold the line in the Pacific, the defensive containment line may well have been east of Hawaii and not west of it in terms of Midway Island. And the third thing, of course, is in terms of the evolution of the aircraft carrier as a weapon, Nimitz really succeeds in this idea of marshalling carriers, putting them together as an offensive strike force, and the pre-Pearl Harbor mantra of battleships, 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 after Coral Sea and certainly after Midway becomes carriers, carriers, carriers. It's June 2nd, 1942. We're about to fight the Battle of Midway. Thanks. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.